when it comes to the parables of Jesus Christ, I think quite honestly, it's really easy for all of us to get more or less kind of psyched out, to kind of think to ourselves, these things are kind of strange, they're sort of off-putting, and how am I supposed to even begin to make heads or tails of these things? Well, without going to an exhaustive list as to various principles you might kind of bring to bear to kind of unpack the various parables of Christ Jesus, perhaps I'll suggest simply two things. First of all, to be honest, and secondly, to be patient. So when it comes to this principle of honesty, I don't think for a moment, just to be clear, that people are trying intentionally to be dishonest when it comes to praying with the biblical texts and when it comes to praying with the parables of Christ Jesus in particular. So don't get me wrong here. But at the same time, perhaps what's really happening is that people are trying really hard to be reverent and respectful when it comes to praying with the biblical text, you know, as they should, because it is the living word of God, living and active. But more to the point, perhaps this sense of reverence or this emphasis on reverence is coming at the expense of one's honest response to the biblical text in question. Because, you know, the thing you got to keep in mind, this is the kind of quote Father John Cameron, is that when it comes to the parables of Jesus Christ, these things are really intentionally meant to be provocative. Like they're written in such a way that they're meant to provoke in your heart this initial negative emotion response where you say to yourself on some level, well, look, that doesn't seem right or that doesn't seem fair. And even though it sounds kind of strange, if that's not your initial response to the text, you're probably not being honest. Okay, but that brings us to the second principle that we talked about at the outset, and again, this notion of being patient. And so when it comes to praying with the parables of Christ Jesus, yeah, someone might be honest in terms of bringing to the table, again, the sense of this doesn't seem right or that doesn't seem fair. But then a lot of times they kind of stop there, right? And they might say to themselves, well, therefore, I'm confirmed in my previous bias against religion or, or the Christian faith in terms of classifying this thing as being irrational or irrelevant or whatever, whereas in reality, they're not being patient. Because patience implies that even though you might perceive a certain tension in your mind and heart where the truth is not immediately clear, you have the patience to wait for the truth to reveal itself when it's darn well ready. And again, that's the principle you meant to apply when it comes to praying with the parables of Christ Jesus. Okay, so to give you a concrete example of what we're talking about here, let's focus on this really famous parable, the parable of the dishonest steward, which we find in the Gospel of Luke chapter 16. And so in terms of the basic plot, at least in the early going, the, the plot is relatively straightforward, right? So there's this master who has a steward, he finds out he's being dishonest, and so he moves to fire or otherwise dismiss the steward. And even though on the face of it, that might not seem like a really big deal, in reality it actually is. And so Bishop Robert Barron talks about this, right? So he clarifies that at that particular time, in that particular cultural setting, there was no welfare, there was no social assistance, and so therefore if you didn't have savings accumulated and if you didn't have a, an extended family to kind of help you in tough times, if you lost your job, you were basically done for, right? And so the idea in terms of like the situation here with the dishonest steward is that he needs to find a solution to his financial situation, failing which he will starve and eventually die. And this ultimately gives rise to some really creative problem solving on the part of the dishonest steward. So first of all, what he does, he takes sort of a mental inventory, right? So he says to himself, well, look, I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm too ashamed to beg, sort of clarifying what he can't do and also what he's unwilling to do before coming up with this really clever but, but devious plan. So what he ultimately does is kind of funny, actually. He goes up to his master's various debtors and he cuts a deal with each one of them. So he says to one guy, for example, like, what do you owe my master? Well, I owe your master like 100 units of oil. We'll make it 50, right? And he goes to another guy, like, what do you owe my master? Well, I owe him like 100 units of wheat. We'll make it 80, and so on and so forth. 
and so in a certain sense, like Shades of the Godfather, you know, that movie by Francis Ford Coppola, right? So the idea here is that, like, look, I'm cutting you a deal now in the present moment, such that one day in the future, I might call upon you to do me a favor. So when I have no job and I have no savings, I'm going to call on each one of you to kind of get me through tough times, financially and economically speaking. But that, of course, brings us to the big twist in the story, right? Because when the master discovers what the dishonest steward has been doing, he doesn't criticize him, but instead he actually applauds him. And so he applauds him for basically doing the same thing that basically got him fired, right? Defrauding his master. And so in the face of it, it would seem to be that Christ is using this parable to applaud dishonesty and fraud and corruption. Now, again, if you're being honest when it comes to reading this particular parable, again, the parable of the dishonest steward, you're not going to miss this tension, right? You're, you're merely going to see that this seems to be nonsensical. But that's where, again, you're called to be patient, right? What's the truth that the Lord's ultimately trying to reveal through this kind of weird and unusual story? Well, the key in a certain sense of kind of unpacking the hidden meaning of the story is to see what Christ ultimately says, what he finally says at the conclusion of this parable. So basically what he says is that the children of this world are more prudent in dealing with their own generation than are the children of the light. And so given all that, perhaps you might begin to see that what the Lord is ultimately applauding in the context of the story is not so much the dishonesty of the dishonest steward. No, he's applauding his sense of try. He's applauding his effort. And in particular, in a certain sense, what he's saying is that our own level of care and creativity and passion and effort when it comes to the spiritual life should be the same level. It should be the same level of this guy at the time of Christ in this particular cultural setting who basically faces this conundrum, either find a solution to this problem or die. And so when it comes to the battle against sin, how often do we say to ourselves some variation of like, look, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak to kind of you know, misquote St. Paul in a certain sense. Whereas in reality, we haven't really made a firm decision to wage war against sin until this thing is sort of beaten to the ground, if you will. And again, just to be kind of clear, it's not simply a question of mere effort, right? So it's not simply a matter of exercising the firmness of the will in moments of acute temptation, but rather it's also being creative, right? So to use an analogy, if I'm struggling with any manner of addiction, whether I'm talking about addiction to alcohol or sexual addiction, whatever the case may be, to kind of take a two-pronged approach, right? So maybe I, I avoid, for example, occasions of sin, you know, bars or you know, internet and in private spaces and whatnot. But at the same time, to put in the effort and to use my intellect and my creativity to kind of explore the why behind the what. Like, what are the underlying reasons why I'm acting out in this way, right? To put in the effort in that regard, in terms of uh, past brokenness, past hurts, underlying needs and desires, that type of thing. Or to use a slightly different example, think about our various relationships or friendships. And so to kind of frame the issue in this way, like how often do we lament the fact that our relationships are not of a better quality? Whereas in reality, perhaps we should ask ourselves the question, have we really invested in our relationships in the way that we should? And so they'll start the point. I remember back in the day talking to one of my good friends about this Catholic summer camp that she had just completed. And one of the things that she said, which really kind of stuck out from my perspective, was this moment of preparing for the camp where the various missionaries for that camp were led in this exercise of kind of honoring each other. So like the guys would honor the girls, the girls would honor the guys. And that was a really powerful moment for her because, you know, here are these guys, not just honoring the women generically, but specifically, you know, so, you know, knowing my friend, what would she like, what would honor her, what would encourage her, what would affirm her in terms of the person that God is calling her to be, right? And so these people would do these things. They would do these things. They would say these things, again, to build my friend up. 
And again, she found it to be, to be so powerful. And she made a point of saying like that was the first time she had ever experienced that from guys. Like that was the first time she had ever experienced a man, never mind a whole group of men, intentionally praying to their actions and their words with the explicit purpose of building her up. And you know, from my perspective, I, I thought in response to what she was saying, um, two things actually. So first of all, like, you know, what a wonderful thing, like a beautiful moment for her and for, for the people at that camp. But at the same time, you know, it's sort of an indictment on, on the state of society, right? Because there's a reason why that story is so unique, right? Because we don't do that very often. And so even right now, just to kind of think about it, like, you know, what's the challenge being laid before us today? To be aware of our various relationships, you know, friends, family, and so forth. But on top of that, and kind of more to the point, to be really intentional about doing and saying things to lead people to Christ. And so certainly this whole exercise might involve necessarily some element of fraternal correction, you know, pointing out to our loved ones certain things that they could do, certain things that they should do to bring themselves perhaps back into the right relationship with God. But on top of that, and this is kind of more to the point, this process, this exercise will probably involve, if you think about it, a lot of affirmation. Again, a lot of affirmation, encouragement, um, positive energy, if you will, to kind of lead people to believe in themselves, to not get discouraged, not get down on themselves. Because in reality, that's what we really need. That's what all of us need. And we need to be really intentional about praying to these situations. When it comes to my circle of influence, when it comes to my various relationships, when it comes to the people that I love, again, what can I do or say regularly to these people to lead them to become the persons that God is calling them to be? Happy, free, joyful, the whole nine yards. Okay, one final example, I'll kind of end with this. So basically, my, my third assignment in the Archdiocese of Toronto was at St. Joseph the Worker Parish in Oshawa. So I was pastor of that parish, but I was also priest chaplain of the various post-secondary institutions in that area, so Ontario Tech, German College, and Trent. And with regards to the chaplaincy aspect of that assignment, I got to admit that in the early going, there were a lot of challenges. Not the least of which was this idea of booking regular space on campus, and so that was really hard to do. As a result of which, we were kind of forced in a certain sense to begin by doing a lot of programs at the parish, right? And so we ended up doing what I think a lot of people would have done in that situation. We started offering explicitly catechetical programs, which very few people attended in the early going. And at that point, we were kind of forced to make a decision. And so the whole idea was that, you know, at this point, do we just be patient and kind of say to ourselves, it's not about the numbers, or do we try something new? And we elected to try something new. And so, if you don't already know, I'm originally from Vancouver and we have a lot of coffee shops. And so, I drew a lot of inspiration from those coffee shops. And so, what we decided to do in collaboration with the Archdiocese of Toronto was kind of reconfigure one of the parish meeting rooms into an intentional welcoming space. And so, for example, we painted the room red as opposed to the more traditional, you know, gray or brown. Uh, we replaced the carpet with hardwood flooring. We installed sort of a barn board uh, accent wall. We put in the TV, we installed a, a lending library and, and so on and so forth. And so it was meant to, again, to be a space where people felt welcome as opposed to a room where people would simply meet. And so what we ended up doing with that particular room, at least in the early going, was focus on socials. So not so much explicitly catechetical stuff or, or anything of that ilk, but just inviting people to come. And so there was this regular Saturday social after the Saturday evening mass where people would just come and boy, did they come, right? And the thing I want to impress upon you is that that wasn't wasted time, right? And so we were borrowing a page from Sherry Waddell's really famous book, uh, Forming Intentional Disciples, where she says, you know, basically the, the first step to forming intentional disciples who are meant ultimately to follow the Lord Jesus Christ is to cultivate this deep sense of trust, 
to give people a positive association with something identifiably Christian or Catholic. And again, that's what all of us were basically trying to do, at least in the early going. First of all, to try to bring these kids through the door by hook or by crook. But on top of that, and kind of more to the point, to cultivate this deep sense of trust. Because, you know, hopefully this goes without saying, but once you have trust, all sorts of really interesting opportunities kind of flow from that, right? So you can kind of take these kids who trust you to retreats, to volunteer opportunities that they otherwise might not pursue, and even come and see weekends. And we had actually a lot of guys go to St. Augustine Seminary in Scarborough, Ontario, precisely for these weekends, these come and see weekends, discerning possible vocations to the priesthood. And perhaps I must suggest that it's no coincidence that during these six years of chaplaincy, where we were focusing explicitly on trust and relationship and building an authentic sense of community, that three young men have actually entered St. Augustine Seminary, again with the explicit intention of discerning a possible vocation to the priesthood. Okay, now obviously we can go on and on with all sorts of different examples, but hopefully you can kind of see where we're going with this, right? So whether we're talking about, again, personal conversion, relationships, or evangelization, it's really easy for us to kind of give up, to kind of throw in the towel and say some variation of like, look, I've done all that I can. Like All I can do now is wait, uh, pray, and uh, trust in the Lord, right? And, and that might very well be the case, right? But perhaps I would suggest at the same time, this parable, right, the parable of the dishonest steward is inviting us to perhaps do more, to examine our hearts and, and ask ourselves, honestly, are we really trying our best, right? Are, are we bringing the same level of care and attention and passion to the table as a dishonest steward who faces these two options, right? Find a solution or die. Okay, now just to be clear, I'm not suggesting for a moment that we simply save ourselves through the mere application of effort, so don't get me wrong. God always remains the author of salvation, regardless of who we are and regardless of our circumstances. What I'm suggesting, though, is that when we try our best, when we give God everything and we hold back nothing, and that level of try and effort comes into contact with God's salvific grace, suddenly, amazingly, the impossible becomes possible. And may God bless you all.